You're listening to the Every Plant Story podcast, where we collect, share, and discover the stories, lessons, and passions behind the people who are always growing more. You're listening to the Every Plant Story podcast, and here is your host, Shane. Hey guys, and welcome to the Every Plant Story podcast. This one's season two, episode seven, in fact, of the Every Plant Story podcast, the podcast where we share all kinds of plant stories from us here at Gabriella Plants and all around our plant community. And we have a very special guest today that I do want to get to. But first, in case you don't know, my name's Shane Malloy, and I own Gabriella Plants. As well, on the podcast today, I have Brett, um, who's our botanist and head grower here at Gabriella Plants. Hello. Uh, lots of enthusiasm there, Hello. Brett. There, there we, we go. go. There's Hello. a better Brett. Uh, and of course, our media director, Zach, is back again. What's up? And I really shouldn't <laughs> say that you guys are back. I should really say that I'm back because a uh, great podcast last week with Hunter, Thank our uh, assistant greenhouse manager, yep. as well. Um, you guys really covered some awesome stuff. And it was, it was good. To g- it's always something really cool from my vantage point to get to hear. Mm-hmm. Somebody who has now not only learned some things from me, but learned some things that I have taught somebody else that has taught <laughs> him. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. that and and the next generations forming in our very midst yep. of what are becoming very professional growers. That greenhouse team is incredibly impressive. Hunter included, but the entire team, even what you've been able oh, to yeah. do. I, I walked in a little bit of just a quick side story. I walked in last like Thursday or whatever uh, to the offices here. I've been one of the reasons I was gone on last week's podcast, I've been meeting with all of the people who work at Gabriela Plants pretty much uh, one-on-one, uh, which I try to do quarterly and just see what their goals are and, and have a touch base with everybody. Um, and when I was walking in, I walked in early enough that you were doing the ship, you were giving the shipping team mm. like a whole kind of recap mm-hmm. of, by the way, here are some of the new plants that we're growing. Here's how you can kind of tell them apart and stuff. Just all across, I say that to say though, all across all the teams, um, shop just celebrate one year uh, this Mother's Day weekend. Bravo to Alexa. I mean, the whole team is just growing so fast and so much. It's so impressive to see. And it was awesome to hear That's last awesome. week's episode, even though uh, I wasn't on it. Still got to mix and produce it. So um, got to listen to it a couple times <laughs> as you got through the editing <laughs> process. And uh, you guys did a wonderful job. So thank, thank you, you guys for giving me uh, that week off. And with that, Brett, I know we have a special guest today. Ooh, okay. So with us today on the podcast is Christopher Satch, the plant doctor of New York City. Who, uh, Chris, hello, welcome. Hi, great to be here. And so uh, Chris has a master's of science in plant science, and he is going to talk to us today about plant physiology. All right. I am down with this. But Go for it. before we get into that, there are some things we like to cover at the beginning. Um, so I believe Chris did a lot of the work for me today. But what is our botanical term of the day today, Chris? Oh, it is um, pseudobulb. Ooh, and okay. Yeah. What is a pseudobulb? So pseudobulbs are specialized structures. They can either be modified stems or modified petioles where they serve a storage function and are particularly found in orchids or the orchid family. And, you know, they store water, they store nutrients, they store sugars, they do all kinds of um, good things for the plant. And they also, on top of that, photosynthesize. 
Ooh, and so, I mean, uh, pseudobulbs are also found in some Tillandsia when they have that kind of bulbous base that can also be referred to as a pseudobulb. So, yep. pseudobulbs, awesome. Um, all right, so then a uh, new discovery we like to every podcast kind of touch on a uh, scientific paper that we found, something like that. Do you see what's in his hand, Zach? Do you see what's in this oh, guy's yeah, hand? that's a fully He's colored got printed piece of I have. I Now, I did not do as many years of college as Chris <laughs> did. Um, far fewer, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen something formatted quite that uh, uh, official in, in a moment, but Brent <laughs> so this is loaded. Yep, this is coming from the plant physiology uh, paper, or not paper, um, publication? This article, yeah, publication, the plant physiology publication, and so the article is called Perceiving Neighbors to Anticipate the Struggle for Light, and it was published in 2021. Okay, no, 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 hold it back up. Wait, wait, wait. Speak English for a half second. What are we talking about? All right, so Chris, you want to break this down? Perceiving neighbors to anticipate the struggle for light. I mean, I, I read over this paper. What What's the gist for, for the people listening? Yeah, so the gist of this paper is basically um, plants are living beings. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and they sense one another in their environment. And all plants are competing for light, ultimately, because light is food. And so without really spoiling anything, this paper is about how plants actually sort of sense each other and interact with each other in order to sort of compete for light, but also not compete for light. So that way, you know, the maximum amount of light is shared slash, you know, there are some, you know, bad players in there. There are some plants that are just like, you know. They're light hogs. They're just going to you know, <laughs> say, oh, I'm just going to take all of your light. I'm going to shade you. And that's that. And then there are other plants that are like, oh, I'm going to go over here and you can go over there and we're going to kind of talk to each other. And they this, do that. So, yeah. This sounds really spookily like the world <laughs> we as human living beings live in, where sometimes some of us mm-hmm. kind of overshadow the 1%, <laughs> you know, the rest of the other people. But other times society and the plants are allowed to get along in a community yep. that's mutually beneficial <laughs> um, in society. So what you're basically describing, though, I, I say it jokingly, but is a society level or like group think mm-hmm. of what is going on within a region of living plants or is it absolutely specific to an individual type of species or is so this now paper, being observed about a lot of things right so the paper kind of highlights how plants in general are able to anticipate and talk to each other to work together to share or not share light so I mean, as a teaser, as we do with all of them, with all these podcasts, this is something that if you are curious at all as a listener, please go and Google Perceiving Neighbors to Anticipate the Struggle for Light in the Plant Physiology publication and read it and let us know what you think. Um, that is fascinating. Yeah, so really, yeah. it's really cool. I may cool. take your copy, you an extra copy of it. Oh, yeah, it's, right, cool. it's out there. Yeah, I'll um, take that. And so then finally, uh, last thing we like to cover at the front is a pronunciation. So Chris is the plant doctor of New York City, but he's also the orchid guy of New York City. I mean, if you want anything to do with orchids, really anywhere, he's your orchid guy. But specifically, he owns the orchid world in, in New York. So what is our pronunciation for today? That is, that is very generous of you, and thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the pronunciation of today is, now there's two ways you can say it. Um, 
there's the, you know, more, you know, true to the Latin pronunciation, even though it's not that true to the Latin. <laughs> um, there's phalaenopsis, uh, or you could say it phalaenopsis. And so, so that is a type of orchid, phalaenopsis. Yep. That say, is the say most the f- common orchid. You can uh, find it in all your grocery stores. Uh, it's, it's the phalaenopsis. 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 That may be one of the very few words of the day where I knew <laughs> that word nice. actually before because that was the type of, I think yes. we talked about it on a podcast, but my grandpa somewhere along the lines, obviously several decades before uh, both of them passed away, but like for a considerable, before retirement, grandpa was just convinced grandma loved <laughs> Phalaenopsis orchids. Like that convinced. was just convinced <laughs> that it was like her favorite thing. And he would even like try to buy them blooming at different times so that he would stagger out when each one of them would be blooming. So he always had one around. So that was like nice. one of the Latin, one of the few Latin words I think my right. grandparents ever talked about. And, you know, most of it is common names, what you would go to, mm-hmm. you know, or right. see on a plant tag. That's right. all normal. Um, but yeah, grandpa was... Uh, yeah, just convinced that that was her favorite type. So he he knew that one. So Nice. Well, awesome. Chris, thank you for doing those for me. Uh, I, I hope the listeners learned something from that. And so from there, let's, let's get into it. So the meat of this podcast, Chris is going to talk to us about plant physiology. So um, I, I have mean, a... I got to say, go ahead. I'm ready to take anything, this, uh, whatever you have to say, as pretty fact, because oh, yeah. his website is nycplantdoctor.com. And I feel like that <laughs> adds so much credibility to just the entire mission here going on. So, I mean, I, I will know. also give master's it, degree. I will I, also give it to Chris me. that, I mean, this is definitely a compliment that he is more scientific than I am. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> in that case uh, that, that, that means a lot to me that actually really means a lot to me because I respect you a lot I'm well, just, I I'm just that. like I that. if Brett says it it must be true if yeah. Brett says it about me I'm just like oh I'm, I'm fangirling right now. I'm a little red in the face <laughs> and, so, and I'm just a little terrified because normally Brett can even be a little uh, a little over my head from time to time but uh, no, we'll, no 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 we got we'll this bring it down. we got this so for the listeners plant physiology is the study of plant function and behavior in Encompassing all the dynamic processes of growth, metabolism, reproduction, defense, and and communication that account for plants being alive. That's right. That's right. It's it's that and all of the interactions between those things. So I'm going to focus on, uh, I'm going to yap. You guys can interrupt me at any time. Um, I'm going to focus more so on um, the biochemistry, uh, which is not as scary as it sounds. (laughs) <laughs> and the morphology or the shapes of the plant. And so I'll probably, you know, most of the morphology, most viewers or, or, or listeners, I should say listeners, are, are probably already familiar with. Uh, it, you know, they just probably don't know the actual botanical term for what they're seeing, but they, you know, the minute I'll give an example, they'll be like, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so um, we'll put some names to faces and faces to names and nice. we'll, we'll just dive right into it. So um, like you mentioned, there's some phytochemistry involved in physiology. There's cellular interactions. There's environmental interactions, morphology. Um, one thing I always like to start off with, especially when talking about uh, morphology and chemistry and things like that, is that nature is both the most creative and the least creative force on the planet. 
in a way that it's created all this diversity, right? It's created all these species, it's created all these, you know, environments and niches and things like that. But if you look at it at the very like core, it recycles and recycles and recycles all these core components and biochemicals. Like, did you know that most plants can, you know, create and consume many of the same exact vitamins and minerals that we do? Mm-hmm. And sometimes even for the same purpose, like, mm-hmm. you know, they even, you know, consume the same amino acids that we do. They need, they need the same amino acids that we do and, and they use them in, you know, their genetic information, building proteins, things like that. So, um, you know, did you know that plants create and consume many of the same vitamins and minerals that we do? And so like, for the example, I'll give is vitamin A. One of my favorites and easiest to talk about is vitamin A, right? Vitamin A, um, you know, that's the one for your eyes, supposedly, right? Vitamin A, carrots, you know, makes your eyes uh, really good. Vitamin A is a strong antioxidant. Uh, vitamin A is also um, used in plants for the same purpose, you know, vitamin A or carotenoids, right? From carrots, mm-hmm. they come from carrots. Uh, they are a coloring factor. So if you've ever consumed a red bell pepper or a carrot, or, you know, something that's really bright orange or bright red, you have consumed carotenoids or carotenoids as you know, some people say them. And, you know, those carotenoids, they provide color, but they also provide oxidative protection from the sun. So you'll see carotenoids. Some plants will also make carotenoids in their leaves as well as their fruit and their flowers. And some of that is for solar protection, right? Plants can't move whenever they're uncomfortable. They have to just deal with whatever cards they're dealt in nature, right? If the sun is too strong, the plant has to, you know, the plant can't apply sunscreen like I can. Right. The plant has to make its own sunscreen. And in fact, a lot of plants uh, use carotenoids and many other compounds to actually make their own sunscreen. Namely, I'm thinking, namely, I'm thinking like Hoyas. Hoyas sun stress a lot. And so that red blush are what you're seeing exactly. primarily are carotenoids. Really? Yes. So it's a carrot exactly. infected Hoya. <laughs> no, <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I love carrots. <laughs> there's also, there's also anthocyanins that are involved and anthocyanins are the more pinky purple. So mm-hmm. like when you think of Hoya blush, like there's probably a little bit of carotenoid action going on, but that like, especially pink blush, Mm -hmm. that's more anthocyanins. And those are also, you know, produced uh, for the same purpose, right? Anthocyanins, you know, when you eat blueberries or black raspberries Mm -hmm. or any other kind of like dark purpley blue kind of fruit, those are anthocyanins. There are pink anthocyanins as well. There are red anthocyanins as well. There's like a wide range of colors they can come in, but the purpose is generally the same. It's for some kind of oxidative protection. Now, when I say oxidative, I mean, it kind of gets a little weird and a little like gray matter area. Right. So it's like, you know, I'm protecting myself from the sun ultimately, even though I want the sun, mm-hmm. right. Because sun leads to photosynthesis, but too much sun leads to breakdown, right. UV radiation and other well, kinds of I mean, of go back to your sunscreen. It, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not the same as wearing, you know, a complete bodysuit that would block anything right. from touching your skin. You're, you are exactly. trying to strike the happy medium, where you want some of the benefits, but certainly not the full weight of exactly. what it could mean to you otherwise. Exactly, exactly. Because the sunlight is, is you know, in too large of a quantity can be destructive. And so these antioxidants actually, you know, when a photon of light strikes a molecule inside the plant, right? Either if it strikes it hard enough, then it'll actually oxidize the, it'll create a free radical, and, you know, you always hear free radicals, and <laughs> beauty, cosmetics, things like that. But it'll create a free radical, meaning that there's just 
too much energy. It's basically irradiated a molecule and there's a free electron just doing whatever it wants and it's not attached to anything. It's just very unstable. And so what these antioxidants will do is they will come, they will find these compounds and they will just bash into them and they will harvest that electron and they will stabilize everything. So that's what these colors are doing. So that's what this blush is doing. This blush is stabilizing the plant and acting on sunscreen. So nice. Um, Wow. Holy, holy moly. Okay. This is next level. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is intense. That, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's that just the just, first point. That's I, just the first that, point. Yeah, I, but yeah. If it, but if it was a TED talk, I would have also paused it like I just did then right now. But yeah, that is incredible. Um, I gotta say, just before we, I know you got a lot to cover. Wh- why did you first yeah. get into this? Like, what what got you to the, to this point? Because actually, it's obviously very impressive and I know, quite intimidating. I know Chris grew up on an orchard, but I actually don't know his origin story. So I am I am curious to hear this. Um, my origin story is kind of boring. <laughs> I grew up on a farm slash orchard in northwestern New Jersey. I know not not exactly the place you expect to see a farm, but New Jersey is the garden state for a reason. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of things grown there. And I grew up on a farm there. And, you know, I was a little bit raised by my grandparents, you know, not always by my parents. And my grandparents are like hardcore World War II you know, we plant a victory garden every single year, you know, mm-hmm. very traditional mm-hmm. American, but also, you know, immigrants too. Typically the women in my family are immigrants from Eastern Europe and the men in my family, you know, originally are from Eastern Europe, but they're American. And um, we've just always been, you know, I don't want to claim that I am a salt of the earth person, but we've always <laughs> been very like in tune with the land, in tune with nature. And we've always been just like, We've also been very direct people. Like we're not like in tune in like a weird spiritual way. We're in tune in a very practical way. Like it needs that. Mm-hmm. I can help it with this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Very just like logical. Like oh, if this, then that. If this, then that. Like that kind of. It's idea. the better generation. That's how they did <laughs> everything, and everything was to the max. My grandparents were the same ways. Maximum mm-hmm. efficiency at all cost. Exactly. Exactly. And that's how I grew up. And that's how I, you know came to love plants and I ended up studying them in um, you know, undergrad. I ended up studying them in grad school and, you know, now I'm at the New York Botanical Gardens, you know, doing adjunct teaching and uh, I do a bunch of other things for like AOS and stuff like that too. But, American uh, Orchid Society. Is yep, what AOS American Orchid Society yeah, and awesome. our local Orchid Society. By the way, if you're listening, you should join your local Orchid Society. Yes. There's Orchid Societies everywhere and they need you. Absolutely. Great plug. I agree with that. No, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry with the derail, but thanks for the backstory. That's that's fascinating. But nothing specifically that made you into the house plants just overall went into plants just being something so you knew and understood. Can I can I confess something? Yeah. Honestly, for most of my life, I've actually been not really that interested in house plants. I've been more interested in practical plants. So like along that line of like what can this plant do for me that I can do for it? Like, you know, I've always been interested in like fruit production Mm -hmm. plants and flower production. Like I don't want to spend my time growing something and all it does is just exist. Like (laughs) I want to grow something and I want to harvest something from it. I want a fruit. I want a flower. I want a a spice. I want something from it. So most of my life I've approached plants that way. And I still do for the most part, like, uh, you know, now my collection has more what you would call ornamentals, but you know, 
if growing for flowers is still something that's productive, then I would say that, you know, ornamentals make up a very small portion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of my, mm-hmm. of my collection. Like I don't have that many leafy, leafy plants that I just grow sh- purely for leaves. There are some, um, you know, I love my ferns, you know, hashtag all the platycerium. <laughs> the best ferns. And, 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 you know, all the other, you know, um, you know, uh, polypodiaceae and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I've just been mostly interested. And even in grad school, I studied physiology, but in terms of like actual crop and edible crop plants. So I also like when you're growing a house plant, you know, that line of thinking is not lost. You know, you have to also think like 100%. what is being put in and what is being gotten out of it's that. It's the same How process. That is, I mean, that is the basis, like that is the main part that I try to get across when I teach any sort of classes, if you can understand the plants on a physiological or or even a slightly mac- more macro level of just how they work scientifically, you then can grow the best plants possible because, I mean, yeah. plants do everything based on science. So. And whether that's having the freedom to pick which plant you like growing mm-hmm. the most or I live in a dark apartment so I'm limited to these options or I only have outdoors I don't have greenhouses I have farmland you know that those life circumstances may kind of sometimes choose which how you apply it mm-hmm. but either way exactly. same principles and and I've learned the hard way because I've lived in rural areas I've lived in suburban areas and I now live in the city so I've lived in all places there are no places that I have not lived lived (laughs) in all the uh, niches that humans can live in and I've learned the hard way honestly I've learned the hard way what can you know what can grow and what can't I always say don't grow or, or, or don't grow what you don't know or don't I forgot what I say all the time I say this all the time but you know oh that's what I say don't grow what won't go that's what I say. Mm-hmm. And you just have to kind of figure out like what will go in my space. Not like, do I want, you know, a giant citrus tree in like this corner in my living room that doesn't have any windows? Yeah, yeah of course I do. It looks great there. But <laughs> do I know that it's not going to grow there? Absolutely. So I exactly. don't put it there. So I'm not going to set myself up for failure. I'm going to avoid that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Be situational. So can I blow your mind? Yes. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Did you know, and this is where going back to um, nature being both creative and not being creative, there is a chemical structure called uh, a porphyrin ring. Now, if you look up a porphyrin ring, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-I-N, you may have heard of a little something called hemoglobin, which is the human blood molecule, right? That transports oxygen inside of our bloodstreams. Did you know that chlorophyll and hemoglobin share a very similar porphyrin ring. And that the cool thing about this porphyrin ring is that in the center of the porphyrin ring, think of it as like like a donut shape, right? A porphyrin ring is a donut shape. And in the center of the donut is a metal cation or a positively charged ion. It's a metal. And that metal does a lot of really cool, interesting things. So inside of hemoglobin, you have iron as the one trapped metal inside of that ring. Mm -hmm. So that iron has an affinity for oxygen, right? Iron rusts, rust comes from oxygen, right? That's how our blood, you know, does all of its cool thing. But in chlorophyll, it has the same structure. I really should say similar structure. It's not identical, identical, but it's very, very close. Um, Chlorophyll instead has magnesium in the center. Now I'm going to sidetrack for just a second. Magnesium 
going back to like ancient medieval, I wouldn't say ancient, but like medieval alchemy times where you had like, you know, uh, people in like the Sahara desert doing all, like when Europe was in the dark ages, like the Middle East was doing all kinds of science and stuff. It was really great. They, you know, were doing a lot of stuff with magnesium and basically found an association between the metal magnesium and light. And in fact, the Chinese had also uh, discovered that too. And so magnesium is actually the core component in fireworks mm-hmm. because when you light a strip of magnesium metal on fire, and it's also blowing people's minds even further, like, oh my God, I didn't know you could light metal on fire. Yes, you can light <laughs> oh, magnesium yes. metal yes, on fire <laughs> because it's super unstable. And when you light it on fire, it creates the brightest um, efflux of light known to man. So that's why we use it in fireworks. So now keeping that knowledge in mind, keeping in mind that magnesium and light have a very strong relationship. Isn't it interesting how magnesium ends up being the one metal that plants have evolved or nature has selected to collect light as well? For photosynthesis, so cool. that wow. that is the magic. That is that the magic is so cool. inside of chlorophyll. And I, I also find, so every time you see fireworks, think of chlorophyll and think of like that's light going out from magnesium. Yes. Magnesium also takes light in if it's in a porphyry. So that's well, it's cool. it's interesting that is we that only then also how sorry ahead. like is that then also I'm assuming how big big picture fast forward I don't know however many millions of years or whatever later once those elements are locked into the plant decayed plant tissue and all that that then eventually gets compacted and everything over time is that the same magnesium that we're essentially harvesting when we go to use magnesium i'm not familiar with how we use Mm -hmm. magnesium in the everyday world atoms atoms and and basically any kind of atom or chemical compound in nature is the same. So matter is neither I, created nor destroyed, but yeah, so exactly. that's, that's a 2 million or hundreds right. of millions of years from now's magnesium deposit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, that's being created every day by the plants that have evolved to figure it out. Like, right. it's also crazy that the only reason we know this is because we've researched and found pockets of probably other plants or organisms mm-hmm. that us also at some point in the, world's history had figured out the same like oh this is kind of helpful if we can figure this out and that's why we have a little chunk of the earth that we can go and mine for magnesium it's interesting that we consider magnesium a micronutrient for plants if it's such a crucial part of literally how they function to be able to photosynthesize so you're raising your eyebrows chris what are you gonna say (laughs) yeah i i I mean it, it it is interesting that's a really great point but if you actually look at like the structure of a lot of these molecules there's like a ton of carbon, a ton of nitrogen, a ton of oxygen, a ton of hydrogen, like a bunch of other things that are being used in much higher quantities. Okay, okay. It, it, it's it's for the fact that magnesium is just so gosh darn efficient mm. that the plant doesn't need that much of it. And also okay. like the term macronutrient and micronutrient are sort of like, we kind of coined them back in the 30s, 1930s, when we sort of kind of were beginning to understand nutrients and plants. And I, I mean, there has been research back even into the 1800s on plant nutrition, but really not as well understood until, you know, the great um, you know, agricultural revolution of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, Norman, um, what's his face? Norman something um, with corn and wheat. And anyway, it, his name will come to me. Anyway. Norman corn, got it. <laughs> Norman corn. <laughs> Just Google that, he'll come up. <laughs> um, 
But it's really interesting, you know, and, and that actually is a great segue into the next thing I want to talk about is, is the biochemistry part of it, which is not as scary, like I tell people, it's not as scary as I, you know, it sounds, you know, a lot of people are afraid of biochemistry, don't be. Um, you know, I tell people all the time, and this also blows their minds that like, if you create a compound in a lab versus creating a compound in nature, whether it's natural, organic versus like lab created, if you're creating the same compound, it's exactly the same compound, no matter what. Correct. So if I decide to create glucose in a lab versus extracting glucose from a plant, it's the exact same glucose. A lab, and, gro- a lab grown diamond is the same diamond that you get out of the ground. Oh, I don't want our podcast exactly. to be marked by the. Con- uh, uh, <laughs> skip past that. Uh, other biochemistry. Uh, other biochemistry. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, so, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. No, all good. All good. Um, so we'll go through the major, like quote unquote macronutrients, which are the only reason why they're called macronutrients is not because they're like any bigger or anything like that. They're only macronutrients because they're the nutrients that when you're, uh, tilling a field and actually growing at mass scale agriculture, these are the nutrients that wash away the easiest Mm -hmm. and you have to keep replacing. Ah. They call them macronutrients in the sense that you just have to keep replacing the darn things. They need it the most. Okay. That makes hmm. Exactly. So NPK, I'm yeah. sure anyone who's ever been to a gardening center has heard of NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. And the lowdown on that, and I'll just keep this very simple. Nitrogen is the backbone of proteins. Any kind of protein used in the plant is nitrogen based. And so that's, you know, your proteins that assist in DNA. Those are your proteins that you make up those amino acids that you eat that are very healthy. Those are proteins that do all kinds of work around the plant cell. So that's nitrogen's job. And that could come in the form of nitrite, nitrate, or ammonia, depending on, you know, the soil chemistry. And I'm not going to get into that. That's an entirely other lecture. (laughs) Um, Then there's phosphorus. Phosphorus is solely important because it is the backbone of DNA. It provides other functions within the cell as well. But the main reason why we add phosphorus is for DNA, because as the plant is growing, the plant has more cells. Each cell has a nucleus and each nucleus contains DNA. So if you're going to grow, gosh darn it, you better have that phosphorus to keep growing. So that's P. Okay. And And then the K or potassium is strictly for salt balance. So that's how plants help regulate their water uptake. And that's how plants, um, you know, I mean, in, in humans, we have both sodium and potassium. Humans, mm-hmm. we use both, more so sodium than potassium. So we have what's called sodium-potassium pumps. If you ever took a bio 101, you probably learned about them. Uh, but plants don't need sodium. In fact, sodium is poisonous for plants. You know, if you ever read one of those, like, historical texts where, like, oh, the barbarians came and they salted our fields and now we can't grow anything, that's because literally they put salt in the fields and plants can't really grow with sodium. I mean, there's a special class of plants that can, but they're not edible, you know, unfortunately. (laughs) And so that would destroy the soil. And eventually, you know, the fields would recover after like seven or eight years, but you know, the point was the population would starve. Anyway, um, then there's the micronutrients, which are super important to plants too. So magnesium, like we covered is strictly for chlorophyll. Uh, You know, there's a couple of other cofactors, enzymes that use uh, magnesium as well. Calcium, your And this is, again, another instance where nature is not very creative, but also very creative. (laughs) Calcium in humans and animals makes strong bones. Think structure. Calcium in plant cells makes a tough cell wall. Think structure. 
So if the cell wall, right, the little box that surrounds the, each individual plant cell is strengthened by calcium, just like my bones are strengthened by calcium, mm-hmm. isn't it interesting how calcium is uncreatively used for the same purpose in two totally unrelated organisms? I love it. That yeah, is I love it. crazy. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So calcium is used for that. And also just a side note. Um, a lot of people, and there's a giant debate about fertilizers. I don't know what your stance is, but like, I have a particular brand of fertilizer that I really like because it's the only brand of fertilizer that I know of that contains calcium. If you look at, am I allowed to say other brands? Am I allowed oh, yeah, to yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Okay. If you look at miracle Grow, miracle Grow does not contain calcium. Mm-hmm. Dynagrow contains calcium. And I mean, there's a reason why a lot of fertilizers don't contain calcium. It's because calcium is very insoluble in water. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to disperse fertilizer is to dissolve it in water. So calcium is purposely left out, but there is a way to, you know, force calcium to dissolve. You use calcium EDTA. So calcium is a a chelating agent. And that just is a fancy way of saying that you can force calcium to dissolve in water. So Dynagrow, I really love and I really use because it allows the calcium to be absorbed by the plant. And it really does make a difference. So definitely make sure. And if you're growing tomatoes, I know that a lot of folks grow tomatoes at home. If you have this thing called blossom end rot, if you know it, you know it. If you don't, don't worry about it. If you get a disease called blossom end rot, ensuring that there's calcium in your mix will get rid of blossom end rot. Because Hmm. what blossom end rot is, is basically it's a fungus that exists in nature. It's everywhere, but it's an opportunist, meaning that Normally it doesn't infect plants. Normally it just kind of hangs out. It does whatever, you know, infects, you know, random things. But when it senses that a plant is weak, when it senses that a plant's cells are too soft, when cell walls are too soft, it'll just start attacking the plant and especially tomatoes. And so if you have a nice juicy tomato, it starts getting attacked by blossom and rot fungus because it doesn't have the calcium to just literally physically keep the fungus out. That's mm-hmm. really all that's going on there. So anyway, interesting side note. Nice. Um, sulfur. I actually did a lot of research into sulfur. Sulfur is the next, you know, sort of macro of the micronutrients. That's that's what I was going to say is is now when I was in college, it was kind of being disputed that sulfur technically was the fourth macronutrient. Mm -hmm. It should be. It really honestly should be because number one, sulfur is in two essential amino acids of the 20, oh, I'm going to get killed by all the biochemistry. 24 <laughs> amino acids, 26 amino acids, 20 something amino acids. Either way, it still sounds really uh, impressive to me. And I'm sure a majority of the <laughs> listeners either way. So although there are a few who may know the answer, I think <laughs> if you just say it confidently, man, I'm right there with you. I, I'm believing you wholeheartedly. I'm just, I'm just trying to preempt the hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> you get used to it. So anyway, of the 20 some odd amino acids, sulfur is an integral component of two of them, cysteine and methionine. And both of those are essential for DNA to um, do its DNA thing. So sulfur is honestly incredibly important. And in fact, sulfur is um, not only uh, you know important for DNA synthesis, but it's also important for amino acids and additionally for microbe defense. Mm-hmm. So plants, a lot of plants, not all of them, but a lot of plants are able to actually take sulfur up as sulfate, as a compound, rip off all the oxygens from sulfate, turn it into elemental sulfur, and then blast a fungus that's trying to infect it with elemental sulfur, which is universally known as like 
bactericide, fungicide, viricide kills everything, but like leaves life forms like you and me intact. Sulfur yeah. is a magical, magical compound. A, a couple, a couple plugs there. I actually, I mean, personally for when I grow my plants, I've started using a sulfur powder um, for a lot of my cuttings that I do because you basically, you take the fresh cut and then you dip it in the sulfur powder. I believe Bonide is the one who, who sells that, that you as they a homeowner, a lot, yeah. you as a homeowner can purchase. Um, but I love sulfur as yeah, antifungal, antibacterial. And then as well here in the greenhouses, we're actually going to start using in our watering rotation a magnesium sulfate um, that will give our plants, you know, kind of that extra boost of protection and strength. So, yeah, I am. I'm glad you're highlighting these. It's very good. Yeah, and, and they're super important because, like, a lot of people, they'll get, like, a laundry list of all these things. They won't have any idea what they do. And so, like, when one is missing or one is exchanged for something else, they won't really know what's actually going on. So and and you're not learn. supposed to necessarily put a tablespoon of each. Uh, right. That's, probably, that's no. probably not the right, you know. So it is kind of important to know what role and how much uh, you actually should be using of any of these particular things. So, as always, read labels before of using course. anything. Label is law. Or you could, I'm sure, right. ask some questions of um, NYC plant doctor over here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that that's sulfur. Sulfur is amazing. Sulfur is antifungal. And, um, you know, it. one last thing about sulfur is that um, it is often, conf- sulfur deficiency is often confused for a nitrogen deficiency because of its role in amino acid synthesis. Hmm. So like, plants turn kind of like canary yellow when they don't get enough nitrogen, right? The new growth is green. The old growth is kind of canary yellow because nitrogen is mobile. The plant forces it towards this new growth. It like sacrifices the old growth to try to, you know, do the new growth. This is if you're growing like more faster growing plants. If you're growing tropicals, this is less of an issue. Mm. Tropicals and nutrient deficiencies are much slower and don't happen as often because again, a lot of tropicals grow in rainforests. Rainforests, they're washing away all the nutrients anyway. These are plants that have evolved to not really get that many nutrients anyway. They still need them, but you know, deficiencies in them happen much more slowly. Yeah, than like- I was gonna say, Chris, down here in Florida, I see a lot of nutrient deficiencies in palms. In yeah, the I was la- gonna say it's really yeah. once you start getting into the pot sizes. Mm-hmm. Like, luckily, our industry, like the potted house plants of people's homes doesn't battle it as much, at least not out of the gate, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the amount of volume of soil that goes into a four-inch pot, we can afford to buy something that is much, much pricier Mm -hmm. per square foot or cubic yard, however they measure it, than what you would do if you use palms or anything else, or for that matter, how much you can really invest materials I mean, obviously over time, but into the ground of right. a, a, a field for a crop for mm-hmm. a season. Like there is mm-hmm. a limit. I mean, hypothetically, the plants could probably benefit if every f- farmer used right. four times as much fertilizer, yeah, and I right? Mean, like I'm sure it, there is a level of, but you have to do all those cost benefit analysis. And oh, when yeah. you're in something like that or the larger palms mm-hmm. and the larger pot sizes that have also had to be in that larger pot for eight years. So like crap soil to begin with. And then (laughs) on top of it, you're a decade later. Yeah. That is going to be like deficient of everything. Yeah. And you know, you know, like the department of transportation is not applying sulfur to those palms that they put (laughs) next to the highway. Uh, Yeah. We'll step nor should they, because it's not going to (laughs) matter if you don't put irrigation there. If you don't have irrigation in Florida, when it's a hundred degrees, it's all going to die, dude. Anyways, pet peeve right there. Sorry. 
Uh, Brett triggered I, I, me. I, I was just speaking. Um, no, that's all really good information. But I was just speaking in terms of like you know a tropical plant which tends to like grow and use nutrients more slowly versus like a temperate plant which like clock is ticking. Temperate plant has to complete mm-hmm. its life cycle in roughly six months or less. Like you have to go from seed to seed in six months or less. Like at least in the New York area, you know, our growing season is like you know depending on which plant, it's like six months, seven months ish. Um, and so like, if you're growing a tomato plant, that tomato plant, like has to like go from seed, mm-hmm. complete its entire reproductive cycle and go to another seed. And that requires a lot of nutrients versus like a palm will get like a tickle taller this year and a tickle mm-hmm. taller next year and a tickle taller. Than, like, it, it, there's no real pressure because the palm is not facing the threat of winter, but again, not saying that they don't have their own like nutrient problems. They definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I'll blast through the next one. Boron is not very exciting to talk about. Boron is like, if you have it, your plants are healthy. If you don't, your plants die. It's very simple. (laughs) Um, Iron, iron and copper. I'll talk about them in the same breath. Iron and copper are complementary. If you have too much copper, you don't have enough iron. If you have too much iron, you don't have enough copper or something like that. Um, They work together in tandem because this goes back to photosynthesis. Iron and copper clusters inside of the chloroplast are used for electron transport. Now, isn't it interesting how, if you think about it from a physics level, right? Electrons, right? Free flow of electrons from atom to atom or molecule to molecule, that's technically electricity. That's what electricity is. Mm -hmm. Inside the copper wires in your home, remember copper wires, electrons are bouncing from copper atom to copper atom all the way through your TV, back all the way to the power plant to complete their loop or whatever. That's electricity. Now, copper is conductive. Iron is conductive. They both pass electrons very easily. So when a plant is doing photosynthesis, to keep this as simple as possible, when a photon of light strikes magnesium, this is basically photosynthesis in a nutshell. Photon strikes magnesium. Magnesium thrusts an electron. I don't, the specifics are, you know, a little murky for me. It's been a while. But <laughs> basically, a, a water molecule is ripped into its core components. So there's a hydrogen is ripped off of water. OH is flung into the universe. It's a free radical. And then the iron copper clusters harvest that free radical. And as that electron goes from a high energy state to a low energy state, that energy is harvested and is used to power photosynthesis, is used to power to force carbon molecules together to create sugar. Boom. Is that not okay? So just so just to bring it back to the real world for like, I'm sorry I keep interrupting, but like it is, <laughs> no, it's, it's good. so good. But like the whole thing you just described is like what we would say is your plant's a little thirsty, <laughs> like you know what I mean, like or that you need to water your plant, right? Like we keep things about, and it's true about so much of nature. Like some because we just don't understand. We haven't been that far down in the ocean. We haven't done, you know, we haven't tested mm-hmm. this. Right. We haven't found that technology yet. And other things just because we do. Hundred percent take for granted that yeah mm-hmm. my my plant is dry because it drank a lot today and we apply these very simple nouns or or verbs to what is you know really a very complex super process complex. happening and like we don't take on for a granted cellular level when we get really you know uh, we get a little uh, offended <laughs> when we have a yellow leaf or something yeah. I mean for right. all that you know it's kind of like us complaining about when we get a scrape or a bruise or something like well all things considered I mean the fact that everything in my body was still 
yeah, roughly speaking, not, like, working. Yeah, pouring blood on my arm. Yeah, like, like and then I still have co- <laughs> I have cohesive thought. Like, you know what I mean? Like, all systems are go. You know, it's just a little bruise. And uh, plants are the same way. They're, what they're having to do yep. every day is a struggle. Mm-hmm. And just because we lack the ability to see it physically or get to hear it described in a way like Chris can do, like it, it's going on right beside you as you're listening to this podcast, Absolutely. watering your plant right now. This is what's going on. That's so cool, Chris. Thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, like this is incredible, mm-hmm. incredible. Well, and that was a yeah. real, that was a really good way of breaking down the whole electron transfer chain, and like you just took photosynthesis and made it like totally comprehensible. That was very good. I, I, I oversimplified it too, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that's a great segue into secondary plant metabolites. So. We talked about nutrients because nutrients are totally. Wait, hold on. What, what's a metabolite? Uh, hold on. Just define what's a metabolite. Ah, a metabolite is, I guess you could call it kind of any compound that's not directly involved in photosynthesis. Mm. So basically, all of the other functions that a plant does involves metabolites. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Go, go, go. So, like, what, like as a human, right? I, I eat food. I digest food. As I'm digesting food, the food is broken down into metabolites or things that are used for certain functions within my body. Sometimes they're consumed for energy. Sometimes they're consumed as a vitamin to, you know, spur on a process or, or store Protein something. Or when you're trying else. to bulk up that whole thing, right? Exactly, exactly. But there are different kinds of metabolites and they don't always, you know, we always think of it as like an energy thing. It's not always an energy, an energy thing. It's, it's sometimes... Um, used for other things. So I'll bring it back to the real world. <laughs> so have you ever had cinnamon? I think I like, have. Like consumed it, I'm assuming is what you mean. I, I, I hope you have consumed it. Yes. <laughs> I imagine you have. Yes. <laughs> so if you've had cinnamon, if you've had lemon, if you've had coffee or tea, congratulations. The delicious, yummy, yummy taste of that, what you're tasting are those what we officially call secondary plant metabolites of those plants. Which I would like to plug for a future podcast. We're going to have Chris back and we're going to talk about secondary plant metabolites for the whole hour. So yeah, he he has a whole thing going on this. So we're going to touch on some now as a teaser to a future podcast. Holy moly. Okay. Oh yeah. So plants, you know, we all know, or at least uh, we should know, that plants eat the sunlight, right? We, we, we call fertilizer plant food, but it's really not plant food. It's plant vitamin. Mm-hmm. And the plant real food, plants eat light. Light right. is their actual food. And when plants are not busy consuming light, right, either at nighttime or even while they're consuming light, plants are doing a whole host of other chemical reactions inside of themselves, just like I'm having a bunch of chemical reactions inside of myself too. And so plants produce... Remember, plants can't walk anywhere. If something is uncomfortable for a plant, if a plant is getting eaten, like if I'm getting bitten by something, I either slap it to try to kill it or I walk away. You know, if a gator is coming at me, I will probably run away. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, plants can't do that. They just have to deal with whatever, you know, however the chips fall on the table. So what they've done or what they've evolved over time are sort of um, I kind of call them fu compounds, <laughs> and I, now, right that, that is a that is a compound I can support. Let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, to the right organism, they are an fu compound, but to other organisms, they are very very interesting. So, for example, cinnamon, which has a lot of um, cinnamaldehyde and cinnamate or cinnamic acid, uh, you know, those are antifungal compounds. If you're a fungus, 
and you try to attack a cinnamon plant and you run into one of those compounds, you are toast, you are dead in the water. But if you are an animal, such as a human, and you come into contact with cinnamaldehyde or cinnamate, you know, maybe on your tongue, maybe you're eating it. Wow, that's really yummy and tasty. And my body might actually absorb some of this and use it to scrub some free radicals out of my body. Wow, that's great. So the plant produces a lot of these compounds for a specific purpose, uh, but they don't always have to say, serve the same purpose to, the, to, to different organisms, right? So mm-hmm. what is deadly to a fungus is yummy to me, right? And that's cinnamon. And to bring it even further, lemons, they make limonene. Limonene is antimicrobial. Wow, if I you know, squirt lemon juice on my counter, not only is, this, is it acidic, which is hopefully killing a lot of stuff just by the pure fact of being acidic, it also has limonene, which is that delightful lemon smell that we all like. That is also antimicrobial. Now that's more so for uh, bacteria than it is fungi, but also I'll, I'll toss this to the audience too. Have you ever really seen an orange or a lemon rot? They don't really rot. They, they just kind they of shrivel, shrivel up and mm-hmm. they just shrivel, shrivel up and just up. stay the same. Mm-hmm. That is Zach the over here. <laughs> well, isn't that whole, <laughs> really? Okay. See, uh, the only reason I know that I like, I had never had that. That's a good question though. To, to mm-hmm. like a thought provoking question. I only know about lemons properties in that way because the, I was taught, I think by my grandma that if you made guacamole, you could apply lemon juice to the top of it before you put like the saran wrap and that will keep it sealed mm-hmm. from, so if you omit it from when you're first making the guacamole and yeah. then you just use the same amount of lemon juice you would use for the guacamole, but put it on top, you can prepare it ahead of time <laughs> and then at the party, mix it up, bingo, no rotten avocados. But that's the only reason I know it. Yep. Yeah. There's, a, there's another thing you could do, side note, for avocado specifically, <laughs> and this is somewhat related to secondary metabolites because it does involve them, but did you know that if you put this avocado seed back into the guacamole after you make it and you put the saran wrap on, the seeds will prevent or reduce the amount of oxidation or browning that the, uh, that the guacamole gets because the seed emits volatiles, mm-hmm. like volatile aromatic compounds that like suppress... <laughs> the browning of the avocado seeds, <laughs> lemon juice, or you could just throw the seeds back in. Either one will work. You cannot see how much my mind is <laughs> melting right now. Like we are trying to remain quiet so that you can finish your sentences, but I'm over here like actually about to cry with how much I'm second guessing my life right now. Oh my it's goodness. All this is, yeah, it's all science. It's all science. It is all science. And like, there's a reason why I'm sure, I'm sure now it's artificial lemon flavor or whatever, or, or scent, but I'm sure the original soaps that mm-hmm. they were imitating were had pieces of lemon or, or, or lemon extract or whatever else to do these naturally beneficial things and that now some of the things we buy or we think just so subconsciously yep. as yeah I mean yeah half the soaps out there smell like lemons I mean that makes sense like at one point maybe was the thing in nature that was actually doing <laughs> that before we could chemical compound make it ourselves exactly Exactly. And, 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 and again, I mean, that's a teaser for avocados. If you want to learn more about avocados, tune into the, you know, the, the future episode. I was going to say, we whatever we do, lights. do not, do not do what? that episode when I'm on vacation. Okay. I, I need to be here <laughs> for that one. I'll even mute my microphone, but I just, yeah, that is going, oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. That's going to be one. So, to watch. so thought provoker, 
have you ever seen a lemon rot? And nine times out of 10, no one's ever really seen a lemon or an orange or a grapefruit rot. They just shrivel and dry up because they don't rot because of all the limonene that's inside of all the citrus just prevents rotting. Like bacteria, fungus, dead, can't even infect it. Versus like a peach, which I love peaches. <laughs> like, you know, that'll just like rot in like a day or two. It just turns yeah, out. Or strawberries getting the fungus and yeah. everything on the outside. Yeah all that stuff. And so, uh, so that's limiting. Um, let's move on to coffee and tea, which we all know has a lot of caffeine in it. Now, caffeine, this is a fun one. Caffeine's actually an insecticide. So now people hear the word insecticide and they think poison, which, you know, they're kind of right, but caffeine is a natural insecticide. Coffee plants do not want to be eaten by insects. Mm -hmm. Where coffee originally comes from, I think it's like Ethiopia or something like that, somewhere in East Africa, um, you know, coffee, you know, we call it the center of origin. This is where on earth these plants originally come from mm-hmm. before they, you know, were grown on mass. Yeah, of course. And, um, caffeine, the plant. And also, by the way, the cool thing about secondary metabolites is that it's not just that one plant that produces it. It's not just lemons that produce limonene. It's mm-hmm. not just coffee or tea that produces caffeine. There are plenty of other plants that produce caffeine or limonene or cinema, uh, you know, cinnamon compounds. It's just they don't make them in high enough concentrations for us to extract them. So for our intents and purposes, yeah. they don't exist. It's, they really yeah, do. we don't know about it because it's not commercially viable, mm-hmm. essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Like, for example, that fresh pine smell, half of that fresh pine smell is alpha pinene. And the other half of that fresh pine smell is, surprise, it's limonene. There's like a good 20% limonene. There's like a really high concentration of limonene in like pure pine extract, which Hmm. is like absolutely mind-boggling. Anyway, back to coffee or tea. Coffee and tea, caffeine is an insecticide. Have you ever really seen a coffee tree been like beaten up by bugs? I I haven't. Have you guys really seen like a coffee tree or a tea plant like I mean, they'll get like a nibble here and there, but they mm. won't really be ravaged. By I mean, bugs like I've seen coffee fields in Peru and know they were pretty clean. And I've seen tea fields in China and they were pretty clean. So, yeah. And that's, that's the caffeine. So the cool thing about caffeine is it's, this is all about dosage, right? So the concentration that the plant makes of caffeine in a dosage form within its leaves is enough to kill an insect. And the way it kills the insect is it speeds up the heart to get, basically make its heart explode. <laughs> the plant is trying to make the insect's heart explode, which it usually successfully does when the insect dies and then you know, cycle of life. So, but what's interesting is, is you've also heard that old wives tale, I'm sure a lot of people have, that like a drop of pure caffeine will also kill you. That is also true. Um, or whatever the concentration, something like a drop or two drops or something like that. But if you were to ingest a drop of pure caffeine, yeah, indeed, you would die as well, because that's the same dosage. I I shouldn't say same. It's a similar dosage to the insect. Like the insect gets like a trace amount and then they explode. We get like a drop and like that's enough for us to explode. But when we extract it from the bean by boiling the bean and making coffee or tea, or leaves for tea, we're getting such a trace amount of caffeine and the caffeine is very potent. It actually jolts our heart as if it's trying to make our heart explode, but it's not enough to actually make our hearts explode. So it just gives us a jolt. We feel, you know, more perky. 
we're a little shaky, but some of those other side effects come with mm-hmm. caffeine too. Like you get the jitters, like you're having involuntary yeah, I wouldn't, nerve. I wouldn't even call it an insecticide. I mean, like you could put you could put old coffee grounds in your garden and it'll stop frogs and toads because it, it absorbs through their skin and literally makes their hearts explode. So I mean, really it's just an nice. overall pesticide. Yeah, caffeine. Holy <laughs> <Yeah>. moly. <Wow. laughs> I'm updating my definition now that you told me. <laughs> I didn't know it killed frogs too. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, that's caffeine and that's, and that's part of the secondary metabolites that are part of plant physiology. And there's way more and just a teaser. We could talk about pine sap and cannabis and all kinds of other fun things in our next talk. Nice. But what I'd like to move on to is sort of the ideal plant model. And this is all very like basic kind of aha kind of stuff. If you've never realized it before, as, as if your brains aren't already like melted down to a pulp at this point. We're going to continue to blast your brains. I think you got two brains. Mine's about halfway down to melted, but I'm still with you. So like (laughs) we'll call it two and a half. So this is where it gets easier because we're done with the biochemistry stuff. So we're going to talk about the ideal plant model. And this is something that's sort of like, it's like official, not official. Like we talk about it in plant science, but we also like haven't really formalized anything with it in plant science, or at least not that I'm aware of. Um, The ideal plant model is basically like the cartoon that you draw in first grade, right? If you draw a plant, right, you draw a stem, you draw a couple of leaves coming off that stem, maybe you draw roots under the ground, and then you'll draw like a little flower up top with a smiley face, right? (laughs) A little flower, smiley face. Like that is sort of the uh, quote unquote ideal plant model, right? You have an unmodified stem. We'll talk about modification in a second. You have leaves, unmodified leaves, you have unmodified roots, and you have a reproductive structure, which is the flower. And so that that is sort of, you know, keeping that image in mind, that's the ideal plant model, where the stem does its primary function, which is to transport things from roots to shoots. The leaves primary function is to release water that comes through the plant, as well as to photosynthesize. And the roots job is to collect minerals and vitamins and water from the soil and transport it all the way up. And the flower obviously is for sexual sex. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the plant model and all higher plants. And I say higher. Ah, That's why it has the smiley face. (laughs) (laughs) So all higher plants have some version of this model, right? So modifications are physiological adaptations to specific environments that changes the way the plant operates. Oh, okay. This is what I love. I love, I love modifications. Go ahead. Tell me, Chris. Yeah. That's how I define it anyway. I'm sure there's a more technical definition somewhere, (laughs) but that's my definition. And so for example, potato tubers are a modification of an underground stem. Mm -hmm. It's basically a stem that's been modified to be very starchy and to store food because, you know, the plant undergoes a seasonal change, whether it's a wet, dry seasonal change or whether it's a cold, hot seasonal change, right? We can get either. Um, You know, there are, uh, you know, there's thick cacti trunks that's thick with two Cs because I know we're starting (laughs) right now. Um, Thick cacti trunks, cacti need those thick trunks to store water and all of the other, you know, wonderful sugars that they make throughout the day in order to grow. Rose prickles, Thank you. Um, I will say it again. I said it the other day at the, we had a sip in social um, for Mother's Day. And I said, as a teaser for the plant science lecture that I'm going to give is roses do not have thorns. Roses do not have thorns. They have, Chris. Prickles. Prickles. 
at prickles because if you're speaking in strict botanical terms, a prickle is a modified epidermis. It's basically mm -hmm. modified skin to form a prickle. Because if you actually go up to a rose, you can kind of use your thumb and you could thumb off. You can mm -hmm. kind of like mm -hmm. pop off each individual prickle. And as you do it, you'll see like, basically you just took a scab off of the skin. That's what exactly. the prickles are. A true thorn. And if you see a real thorn, like on a <laughs> hawthorn tree, they're nasty SOBs. Like they're nasty, <laughs> nasty, nasty. Like true thorns are modified branches. Think of an entire branch that's just designed to kill you. Like that's a thorn. <laughs> and if you really, if you Google a hawthorn, thorn, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E maybe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thorn, like you'll see some nasty like medieval looking stuff like oh wow like and so thorns thorns are modified stems and then spines right. are modified leaves that's right spines are modified leaves and those are for cacti and spines in modified cacti spines are as modified leaves and cacti serve a dual purpose maybe even a triple purpose depending on your perspective purpose number one is to keep herbivores away and that makes sense because mm -hmm. if you're in a desert and you're the no, only no, no. juicy thing for miles obviously you're going to get eaten. So you want mm -hmm. to make yourself as unappealing as possible. And the way they do it is through physical pain. <laughs> <Best word. laughs> option, option number two, or, you know, viewpoint number two, the, um, the spines on a cactus are to also keep insects out, especially for those super spiny cacti that like you can't even touch the cactus without touching the spines. Those are to keep insects out. Like an insect can't even get to the skin. That's how many spines there are. And you, can, you can't even touch the cactus. Like that's how many spines there are. So that's reason number two why they have spines. So number one is for like mammalian and bird kind of um, herbivores. Number two is for insect herbivores. Number three actually is to keep the sun out. Mm -hmm. A lot of cacti have white spines and white hairs that they produce in addition to the spines to just kind of deflect the sun. They're just like, I can't take any more sun. I need to cool off. And they're typically white to just, you know, scatter the sun's rays or to make the sun as not intense as possible. Because again, this is harsh desert sun. This is not like the sun in your backyard. This is like desert sun. Like, And, they, and, and they, they've modified themselves to survive that environment. That's how they survive their, that environment. So that's um, those are examples of modifications. And so there are plenty of other modifications. I'm sure the houseplant group, hashtag houseplant group, mm -hmm. uh, are probably very familiar with Monstera aerial roots. We'll talk about roots for a little bit, and we'll talk about shoots and leaves. So there are aerial roots, there are adventitious roots, there are storage roots. There's all kinds of things, you know, modifications of true root tissue. I'll make that, um, you know, that little pin mark. So aerial roots like Monsteras are kind of like a form of adventitious roots. Adventitious is the category. Mm -hmm. Aerial roots right. are like, you know, a subsection of that category. Adventitious roots are basically, I call it a root out of place, even though it's not no, really that, a root out of place. Really, that's true. It's a, it's a root coming from a part of a plant that wasn't a root previously. Exactly. Or, or should not give rise to a root. Right. It's like, wow, a root came out of this begonia leaf that I tried to, you know, put in water. Like, wow, like those are adventitious roots. And like over time, as it morphs into a new plant, like, yeah, they start to become, you know, the cells divide and then true root tissue is formed. But um, for all intents and purposes, as you're propagating plants in water, if you choose to do that, I don't. But if you do propagate plants in water, 
99% of what you're seeing are adventitious roots, especially if you take a cutting, those are adventitious roots. So those are just roots kind of out of place or roots coming from tissue, as, as Brent said, that's not really quite meant to give rise to roots. Um, but it does happen. And monsteras do it all the time. A lot of climbing or vining plants will have adventitious roots. You know, a stem will just have a bud and that bud will pop out a root instead of a new shoot. That's okay. That's how they've evolved. There are also storage roots like carrots. A carrot is a tap root that has just gotten real thick to store nutrients for, you know, the next season. Turnips and beets and radishes, all modified tap roots to store that good stuff. Um, you know, those are, those are modified roots. Now, not to be confused with tubers and bulbs, which are not roots. Neither of those are roots. And rhizomes aren't really roots either. Correct. Rhizomes and tubers are underground stems. The difference between a rhizome and a tuber is like, I mean, personally, I think they're kind of the same. I think they should be interchangeable, but the real difference, at least as I understand it, is that a rhizome kind of creeps, whereas a tuber doesn't really creep. Mm-hmm. A rhizome will keep, it's basically a stem growing sideways, but underground. Like Correct. a rhizome yeah, yeah, will yeah. continue to grow into new areas and like creep. Much like a vining things. plant, it kind of has a destination that it's trying to get to, like it, it is right. trying to move mm-hmm. across an, an area. Exactly, but all underground. A rhizome is strictly underground. Uh, versus like a tuber, which kind of is like, well, I'm a fat stem and I store nutrients just like a rhizome does, but I'm just kind of hanging out over here and like a potato. Potatoes are like classic tubers. Mm. They're just fat. They stay there. They don't do much, you know, uh, kind of like me after I eat a potato. I don't <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so those are, so those are, uh, you know, those are underground modified stems. Then there are at ground level stems, which are like your stolons, your runners, your I guess you could call suckers sort of mm. like that as well. Those are stems that grow along the ground, but still on top of the ground. Um, you could think of orchid rhizomes as well, kind of like that, because a lot of, especially bulbophyllum, um, they'll grow above their substrate. I know they're not really, you know, they're rhizomatous, I guess. Yeah. Rhizomatous is the safest way to call them. Right. Um, a lot of orchids are. Um, it's it's just for the sheer fact that orchids don't grow in the soil that we can't really call them. <laughs> Oh, well, they're rhizomatous. They're like a rhizomatous. Anyway. anyway. Um, so that's that. Those are, you know, modified shoots. And then there are above ground uh, modified shoots or branches. Shoots, branches, same thing. Uh, you have thorns and you have tendrils. Tendrils are the other kind of modified branch. So a bud, any bud on a stem could become a flower. Mm-hmm. It could become another branch. It could become a root or it become... Or it could become something else, like a thorn is, or a tendril. But Chris, what is that area of undifferentiated growth called? Ah, so each inside of each <laughs> bud is this tissue. And this tissue is what we call meristematic tissue. It's really the secret sauce of plant propagation, mm-hmm. tissue culture. And it's the secret sauce of how plants can kind of grow. A lot of plants can grow a lot of things from a node, right? So... Meristematic tissue is basically just tissue, undifferentiated tissue. It's tissue that can become any part of the plant. And what a lot of plant breeders will do is they'll slough off some of this tissue if they want to clone a plant. So let's say you have a very valuable plant or you have a plant that unfortunately has a virus, right? The, the, The only part for whatever reason, I don't even really quite know the reason the only part of the plant that's virus free or disease free or whatever free usually ends up being the 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 buds Mm -hmm. so what you'll do is you'll 
take a little tiny slough of the cells out of the bud while trying not to get any other cells out of there because those are contaminated. And you put them on an agarose growth medium and you grow them and you treat them with plant hormones and you turn them into a callus. And then, then it's just like butter on waffles. You just keep sloughing off more of the callus onto different plates. And then suddenly you have like a thousand different combinations. <laughs> and you don't even That's a great that. way to describe tissue culture, <laughs> butter on waffles. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, I, that's, that's really kind of what it is because yeah. you're just sloughing off cells and you're just popping them on another plate. It's like, Oh, there is a propagation. <laughs> so Those are, those are, that's meristematic tissue and meristematic tissue exists inside every single bud. Um, Once it becomes differentiated, then it's, you know, determinate, you know, if it wants to, if it, you know, and that's based on hormone concentration. So Mm -hmm. plants have hormones, just like we have hormones and hormone concentration determines whether or not it's going to be a flower or another stem or a leaf or a root or a tendril or whatever. So um, and there is meristematic tissue in the shoots inside of buds, but there's also meristematic tissue in the true roots, right? Because the true roots need more meristematic tissue to make more, more roots. roots. This is how roots can branch and do. So basically a plant is in a weird philosophical way, the same underground as it is above ground, right? Because mm-hmm. the roots have buds, you know, their own root meristematic tissue that can branch off and create more roots. The only difference is, is that typically it doesn't really anything other than roots right. underground right. typically speaking um but above ground there's a lot more creativity because there is light or energy in order to do those things so those are roots and then as far as leaves are um concerned uh leaf petioles it, there's a little bit of a debate within the botanical community leaf petioles or leaf stalks uh can be modified into stipules some folks think that it's true modified leaf tissue other people like me think that stipules are modified plant stock, uh, leaf stock tissue, mm-hmm. um, which some people who are very new to the craft erroneously call plant leaf stalks the stems. I'm like, these are not stems, they these are, are leaf stems. stalks. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but stipules, stipules are basically, if you've ever seen, um, a euphorbia is the only example that comes to mind, but I know that there's a more obvious example. Maybe Brett, you can help me. <laughs> um, Euphorbias have prickles. Basically, euphorbias are old world cacti, mm-hmm. even though they're not cacti at all. They're cacti mimics, really, because two unrelated plant groups ended up evolving in the same kind of climate and temperature and things and, you know, herbivore pressure. They both ended up evolving either spines for cacti to keep predators away. And for euphorbia, they've evolved very sharp stipules in order to keep predators away. Um, so, and a lot of euphorbia look like cacti. So mm-hmm. you might have bought a euphorbia thinks, thinks it's a cactus. That's another lecture. <laughs> but there are other, um, I think grapes, you might have to fact check me on this. I think certain types of grapes and porcelain berry, which are also mm-hmm. the Tixier, make stipules. And a lot of, and again, fact check me on this. I think some tendrils can also like arise from stipulous tissue. I'm not hundred percent certain on that, but stipules are basically like another leafy growth or other kind of growth from either a leaf or a leaf stalk. So if you see like a weird leaf stalk that like kind of flares out like another kind of like, like a little mini leaf on the leaf stalk, like that's a stipule. Yep. If you ever see that, I don't know how to describe it. Um, and then, of course, you know, if once you start getting into like actual plant structures, we talk about, um, you know, 
plant forms of physiology. Yeah, I think we could. Take, I think we could do morphology on a whole a whole another podcast. Yeah. Talk about morphology. Absolutely, and like leaf arrangement, also formerly known as phylotaxis. Yes, know, people are most my middle fingers got them tatted. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Whenever we do that, I, I got more uh, questions. Whenever we do we the the Thorn podcast? Because mm. mm. I yeah, I gotta don't spoil it now, but I gotta know like, do those cells like know that they're going to wage war? Like, do, are, is are, is is that like a? As something you can sign up for, like volunteering for the military type of thing. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, what do you want to do? Oh, okay. No, I want to go be a thorn. <laughs> I want to just present a problem. I think it's more conscription based. Okay. Okay. Else. Like I said, we can talk about it when we get there, but I got a couple of questions to break it down for sure. Sure. All right. So then with leaves, we'll save, we'll save morphology and, and arrangement. Yeah. For I mean, it's very separate. clear. We're going to yeah. have to have Chris back because of course. this is, I mean, only a fraction of what he could obviously make a full Netflix series with the amount of information this guy is all incredible. We all could. And we all need to. And I think mm. that's kind of the reason why we have this podcast is because there's things you don't know. I mean, even mm. when we went to um to Dallas to visit Steve's Leaves and stuff, there was that's a, a two-way street. Nearly every single friendship in life as a general statement, but especially in the plant community. With a lot of the the growers and things, yeah, we we can all learn so much more mm-hmm. if if more people yep. read. I love that we get to on the podcast now cover some of these research paper because these are things that that researchers spend exactly years, you know, months, years trying just to write what we would look at and go, oh, that's you know four pages of a lot of legalese, you know, that I don't know how mm-hmm. to read, you know, right. that is somebody's entire you know career. dissertation oh, yeah, career exactly. and and what they went in to do you know, professionally mm-hmm. for the rest of their life. So yeah, the more we can learn from each other is, is a hundred percent. Well, it's been amazing having you, Chris, what else do you want to sneak in here uh, before we let you go today? I know we need to plug um, your Instagram and stuff, how people can get a hold of you and we got to have him back. And I, I was, oh, yeah. I text, I text Zach in the middle of the show. Um, I, I text him and I said, Hey, if we do a more elaborative covering of all those other, um, Oh man, don't grade me poorly oh, for not please, being able to remember. Uh, secondary time. metabites, mm-hmm. metabolites, oh. metabolites. I got close. Yeah, yeah, I, I was yeah. I was in the ballpark. I was in the I was in the ballpark. Uh, but anyways, when we do that episode, like yeah, to be able to ha- like actually have something with a lot of cinnamon there, because like those are those visual things mm-hmm. that I think sometimes a podcast is a great medium to talk about everything we've talked about. But like just being able to hold up a cup of coffee and talk about it too, like puts it in real context to a lot of people on social media and stuff. I just think that that's a, a totally under, it, it's something we oh, take absolutely. for granted. And every once in a while, I don't know my, t- I'm not, I don't spend enough time on TikTok for TikTok's algorithm to know me <laughs> good enough yet. Um, so I don't know what else out there, but sometimes it's those little, that's the only time I've ever seen some of these weird facts is like if your yep. grandparents knew it, Mm-hmm. Or if you get the weirdest like dead end tunnel to YouTube or Facebook videos that eventually <laughs> you land on something that has no audio, but is telling you that like, did you know back in the day we used to use lemons as the only way that we washed our hands? You know what I mean? And they have right. like those kind of like historical wow fact things, you know, but n- these are both in the research elements and in sometimes just how things work mm-hmm. exactly. scientifically, you know, at a molecular level. Yep is really the explanation as to, yeah, why that leaf turned brown. What, you know, why that plant failed, why this plant succeeds, I why this is helpful, right why there, this is hurtful. Right you just said, it's the why. A lot of the times in, like, everyday human life, we don't get the why. We just accept it as it is. But there always is a why. 
Yeah. Yep. And and I, I can't wait to have you back on the podcast again, Chris, real soon. Uh, tell the folks on Instagram. I know your website is nycplantdoctor.com. Obviously, they can check you out there. But your Instagram, anywhere else or anything else you want the listeners to know at the end of the show here? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, nycplantdoctor.com is, uh, you know, you could write me email there. My email is there. Uh, if you're in the New York City area, I do plant consultations. Um, you could find me doing orchid stuff for either our local orchid society or the American Orchid Society, um, or you could take a class with me at NYBG. Uh, or you could just follow me and all the crazy stuff, plant stuff that I post on Instagram, uh, Botanic Tonic. And, uh, and, and, and that's pretty much it. That's a, you know, you can, it, it's pretty easy to find me. So <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and we, I, we have no excuse currently to go to New York or it's not on the calendar <laughs> right now, but we, I, in my book, I have one more reason to go yeah, to New we'll York. Find, we'll yeah. Find another excuse. We'll find a way to get up to the botanical garden. That'd be awesome. Oh yeah. So, oh, between Chris and I, we could definitely get us into NYBG. Oh, yeah, but that's going to need like a week long trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. The, uh, we won't fill you in on the the the, the horror story. Uh, just kidding. The the the, the traveling to uh, filming more hours than you spent like sleeping or doing anything else is not exactly the way to do a trip. We learned that the last trip we took. So yeah, we'll definitely budget more time, Zach, so we can uh, not be rushed as we were last. But Chris, this has been great as always. I love talking to you. Uh, but as uh, I would call it, we spent time botanizing today so oh i like that yes. okay can, can, is yes. that the name of the podcast <laughs> botanizing, yeah. botanizing with the nyc plant doctor. i love it i like it i like I it. Love well, it well thanks so much for being here chris and uh yeah we'll definitely have you back on the podcast soon Bye. Yeah, thank you guys for having me thank you guys so much this is this is a great blessing and an honor thank you so much thank you <laughs> of course till awesome. next time chris till next time, next time. bye Oh my gosh. That was a brain melter. Yeah, <laughs> the whole time I'm just like this. Why haven't you been on TED Talks? And not like one of the weird TED Talk <laughs> Australia or any of the like he the spoke sub at Cultivate. channel. He spoke at Cultivate. Yeah, but still, that's not Maybe. TED Talks. Right, I'm right, saying right. like that yeah, is like, that yeah, of, again, mm. not TED Talk Berlin, like TED Talks, mm -hmm. the primary channel, like 100%. Not Greg Talk. No, talk. Mm -mm. Ted's talk, mm -hmm. not plant talk. <laughs> no, but it, it, I love when you can break any process, whether it's like getting to why you feel a certain way about something like internally, like introspection style or with processes like how to ship a plant mm -hmm. better or with the simple, simple things like we said during the interview, like these plants are all performing their jobs and there, there is active exactly. stuff going on all mm -hmm. the time. It's just something we don't perceive, like we see, and therefore, because we can't see it, we don't perceive it as happening, but it's happening and it's so active. So I, I just, I love any opportunity to break something down to like something that simple. Like of at course. its core, this is why this element is here. This is why the plant does this. You know, we can have fun about whether it's classified this way or that way, or whether this name better describes mm -hmm. it than that name. But like at the end of the day, when a plant's thirsty, it's going through those processes and it, it's, I love opportunities like that where you get to just have it broken down in that scientific way that also 
you know, spoiler alert, but it's after the pod. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've already heard it, but you know, applies to humans, applies mm-hmm. to other living organisms, like the things that happen to plants. And honestly, Brett, um, when we talked in the beginning of the show on that the research paper you brought in, like I'm legitimately actually curious to mm. to read about that because it is not counter entirely, but it would kind of go against your second nature if plants have a way of having a community and kind of sharing Absolutely. resources in a way. It would go against survival of the fittest, which is like the basic principle that we have applied as a way to not have to think about more mm. complicated systems that, than us. But if it's a very small organism and seemingly insignificant to humanity, we just go, mm. well, eventually it's survival of the fittest and they figure it out. And that's why we have what we have today. Uh, you know. But mm. meanwhile, if this is just shedding light on one right. way that they could share light... No, I, d- I definitely sharing? think it's like animals are definitely survival of the fittest, but it's never been that plants are plants are fungi or have always been a very symbiotic community type of organisms. That, like you said, it's easier for us to just apply what we think about animals to plants, but that usually isn't the case. Or even to organisms, mm-hmm. you know, we can just say it's survival of the fittest, but we don't often think about it in well, it's you know, it's it's grabbing the the free electron is mm-hmm. you, you know harvesting magnesium or it's utilizing this chemical, you know, like that's not what we think about we think about oh well it's it's just you know oh it's doing the photosynthesis (laughs) thing the plant is quote-unquote growing yeah i mean the our our, our slogan would be a lot different if we had to botanically say something (laughs) accurate to always growing more if we had to say you know always (laughs) propagating and like classify every subsection of what growing means or what it encompasses no but for real though we just take it as propagation we don't Mm -hmm. talk about it in well you're cutting the stem and not only are you cutting the stem you want to you know we don't often every day talk like that so but if you come to all of the lectures or workshops at shop which is a great segue because coming very soon not just at shop here locally in central florida but we have heard the request and we are going to start bringing some of those botanical workshops and lectures and things to you guys listeners all across the united states and Mm -hmm. across the world uh online via our handy friend the internet uh (laughs) yeah sitting on your couch we'd be Sitting in your pool, you could be on the toilet, all <laughs> yeah. listening mm-hmm. to Brett talk about some really cool plants. And, and walking yep. you through some, it's very similar to how today's show went, but you know, in a Brett style way. And honestly, I'd love to see, we may be able to have some future, you know, live stream or something that has a, a Chris or, mm-hmm. or another um, plant, you know, professional that knows something about a topic maybe we don't even know how to go in as right. deep on. I mean, that's part of this Every Plant Story podcast is finding those people who can tell portions of the story themselves but anyways we are going to have that upcoming first live stream and just to not date this particular episode we're gonna have some communications in our emails and things that are relevant Mm -hmm. to this first one coming up so definitely pay attention to our social media and our emails and things uh over the middle of uh 20 pretty much the summer Mm -hmm. Uh, we're gonna try to do couple of them at least yep. mm-hmm. um, throughout the summer. So definitely going to give you guys, not only you as a plant person, maybe you <laughs> and your kids on summer break, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, um, some opportunities to also get to stump Brett live because he's <laughs> made that bold uh, claim on Instagram several times, uh, <laughs> but never had to be put in front of the camera. So Zach and I are... Um, I didn't tell Zach this ahead of time, but we should definitely like save, like make him accustomed to thinking the lights are only so bright. 
And then when you know, he turn starts, up the light. Yeah, oh, yeah. as soon as he, as yeah, bit. as soon as we get any indication <laughs> that he may not know yeah. the answer to this one, you just kind of notch it up, and all of a sudden, mm, the sweat's on the, the yeah, the sweat's on the brow. It's adding up. No, but for real, uh, one of the small reasons we had to delay that project was simply part of always growing more for us as a company and an organization in 2022 meant we had to reconfigure some office space over here where we record the podcast at our shipping and offices at Aloma, um, and that meant we had to take down the set that we had kind of purpose built mm -hmm. to create educational content in something that's a little bit more controlled and makes sense. And uh, we're excited to now have that up in what at one point in 2020 was our shipping building uh, back at the greenhouses, which will also put us on property to be able to do future greenhouse lives and other things like yep. that. Um, so definitely something we've been working on from an infrastructure and a creative design like standpoint and making sure that it's something we're really proud of. And Brett's been doing tons of research as always and has really been able to use the the local event versions of mm -hmm. these to refine a lot of it and i'm sure there are a lot of questions that you already know the answers <laughs> to just because you've heard it a time yep. or two we get that um even with greenhouse tours and stuff so definitely a lot to look forward to in future education coming from always Gabriel grow more Gros, for sure or gabriella plants wow i dropped into gabriella grows <laughs> wow uh and with that Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Every Plant Story podcast. Of course, you can get in touch with our guest via the channels that we mentioned in that interview. If you need to rewind, you can. Um, definitely a great having Brett, uh, Chris, and stuff on. Um, and great to have you, Zach, Brett, with me again here of on the podcast yeah, yeah. as always. So, And thank you guys for listening. If you have a question or you want to follow us, um, you can follow us on Instagram at everyplantstory. Of course, you can also follow us at Gabriella Plants at Gabriella Plants online as well. And if you have an email, you can email it to podcast at everyplantstory.com. All right. And with that, until next time. Bye. Bye. If you have a question for Shane or the podcast crew, you can always email them to podcast at gabriellaplants.com for a chance for your question to be answered in an upcoming podcast episode. Send your questions to podcast at gabriellaplants.com. Looking for your next house plan on a budget? We have one of the widest selections available at GabrielaPlants.com with hundreds of options grown just for you and ready to ship directly from our greenhouse to your house. <laughs>